Welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, and it's the September 16 edition. This week, organizers all over the U.S. of A. are racing around to put the final touches on the climate change rallies to be held around the world. And in service of that topic, I'd like to dedicate this show to Sam Sutter, District Attorney of Providence, Rhode Island, who last week assumed a leadership role in dropping the charges of two climate change activists, Ken Ward and Jay O'Hara, who used their shrimp boat, mind the, mind the modalities here, they used their shrimp boat to block a freighter delivering 40,000 tons of coal to the Brayton Point power generating plant. Sutter agreed with the activist position, but not their actions. He'll be taking part in the New York City rally with the People's Climate. This emboldens activists to mobilize around the climate change issues. Everybody take a, take a message there. If you aren't in the New York City area, you can do something all the way back here. Information about that in the second half of this show. Today, my first guest will be UCI Professor of Earth System Science, Steve Davis with new vocabulary for the common man as well as necessary global perspectives. And I'm hoping we're going to pile a lot of intellectual honesty into our conversation here. And returning to Ask a Leader is climate change lobby activist Mark Tabert to take up the national climate change rally that he'll attend in New York City as well as post us on some of his latest inroads, uh, schmoozing up some of that uh, Orange County congressional delegation. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Professor Steve Davis, Earth System Scientist at UC Irvine. His research takes a systems approach toward reconciling increased demand for energy with the need for reducing carbon emissions. He assesses future scenarios of energy and emissions in order to quantify the climatic implications of different paths and mitigation efforts. Steve Davis completed his bachelor's degree in political science and philosophy at the University of Florida, his JD, the, his law degree at the University of Virginia, and his PhD in environmental sciences at Stanford University. I guess that's where he met Ken Calder, who was on this show about a month and a half ago. Prior to coming to UCI, Steve Davis has contributed to such institutions as the Carnegie Institute for Science, University of Washington Joint Justice Institute for the Study of Atmosphere and Ocean, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and of course, Stanford University. He joined UCI's Earth System Science Department in 2012. He is the co-founder and chief scientist of Near Zero. Even though he is another be everywhere engaged in many missions climate change scientist, he's come all the way to our KUCI studio to present his vital work and expansive perspective. Welcome to the show, Steve Davis. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Claudia. Wow. I, I, it was hard wedging this one in, and I've been trying for a while, and I'm so glad you're here. Let's, Steve, let's start 
with the shout out all of your colleagues and you received by the President of the United States at the UCI commencement address. Take a radio bow, will you? How was that message for you that day? Oh, it was quite a thrill to hear the, the place that you work being acknowledged by the president himself uh, in front of that kind of a crowd. So that was a, a great thing for not just UCI, but our department in particular. And I, when I we, we talk about that crowd, that crowd was in the stadium and the crowd was the way, way beyond around the world that um, you were all getting that acknowledgement for such diligent, consistent, visionary work. Sure, sure. I had actually just taught a class on energy and climate issues the, the semester before last spring, and I actually had students from my class who were in attendance that day, and they were, they were posting on Facebook that the president is talking about what we covered in our class and that sort of thing. So they were very excited about it as well. Well, and that, I thought, was what was so elegant about what his staff prepared for him to deliver is it, it acknowledged the preeminent, the initial Earth System Science Department throughout the country there at UCI and, and energized any student who had any skin in that game. Well, we all have skin in the game, but any one of them who had the academic skin, that they heard themselves be mentioned, and they must be all the more motivated than uh, what you've done with your uh, instruction. I, I certainly hope so, yeah. It, it seemed like a call out in that way. Absolutely. Well, now let's turn to your groundbreaking work that estimates the emissions that we can anticipate from all existing and future fossil fuel burning infrastructure worldwide. And you've coined the term or the expression committed emissions or commitments. Can you talk to us about what that is and what that means in terms of the whole global warming um, trend that is uh, ever so persistent? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, we've been monitoring for years as a world uh, how CO2 emissions have been rising year after year. But what we're looking at there is what's actually coming out of smokestacks and tailpipes worldwide. Um, the problem is, is that what we need to know is where we're headed. And just knowing that those annual emissions are rising isn't necessarily good enough. It's sort of if you're driving down the highway, looking out the side window instead of where you're headed. So the idea behind commitment accounting is that we know when we build a fossil fuel burning power plant, uh, something that burns coal or gas, that these things tend to be around for 40, 50, maybe more years. And so when we build a brand new one, we kind of uh, have some pretty good idea of the emissions that are going to come from that power plant in the next 40 or 50 years. So the commitment accounting looks at the standing stock of infrastructure like power plants and vehicles that already exist around the world and that we can expect to be operating and pumping CO2 out for the next uh, few decades and estimates what those emissions are going to be because it's a pretty good indication unless we want to walk away from that valuable infrastructure of what's coming. So when you're talking about vehicles then you're including then the transportation sector not just the the uh, the power generating plants and uh, other pipes. Yeah, the, the initial study that we just had come out looked strictly at the power sector. And that's because, first of all, there's really good data on what exists worldwide. And there's also a little bit uh, better indication of what, what sort of lifetimes we can expect from the different facilities that exist. It gets trickier when you start looking at other things like transportation infrastructure or they're moving targets, literally yeah, and figuratively. That's exactly right. And, and different countries drive them different amounts and, uh, you know, keep them going. Look at Cuba, right? They have cars that are, uh, you know, 80 years old at this point. And so 
uh, it's a different game, but it's not impossible. And so we've taken up trying to estimate those emissions as well. Okay, fine. Um, so the trends, you have some trends, you've charted them uh, beautifully in these publications, and they're, uh, they're considerable. So uh, you want to uh, talk about, now there, you were saying the expected lifetime is a very important factor of this, and it's, but the, the trend is nowhere but hotter and up and up. That's right. So, you know, if you look at what's actually coming out of power plant smokestacks in a given year, it's around 14 billion tons in the year 2010. But in that same year, we actually built power plants that in their future life will emit 19 billion tons, so more than what was actually emitted. And the, the punchline there is that the future emissions that we're committing ourselves to with this infrastructure is a growing number. And it's growing actually faster than our annual emissions are. So this, this sort of future emissions that are in the pipeline are bigger uh, every year. They're rising at about 4% a year. And that's a really bad indication for our uh, chances to mitigate this problem and reduce those emissions. So to borrow your analogy, you're talking about looking out the side, um, side window that to, to chart the consumption uh, commitment level of these carbon or fossil fuel emissions, if we look back at our pipe, that is a small uh, small uh, trickling of uh, fumes out the, ga the pipe, but if we looked in through our, our windshield, we can, we're just seeing a gusher of a, of a uh, chimney of smoke in terms of where we're headed. Yeah, that's right. The, the total commitment is definitely a large number. It's 300 billion tons of CO2 just from the existing power plants. Uh, another useful analogy that yes. I've used is is a credit card. I think this resonates with a lot of Americans these days where I if you charge something on that card, that's essentially like building a power plant. You're going to have to pay that debt sometime in the future. It may be sooner or later. But what you're actually paying in a given month is what is coming out of the smokestack that month. And so what we're doing is we're charging more than we're paying. And so the balance on that credit card is growing, and it's growing fast. Um, and so that's, that's a bad sign, uh, again, if we want to reduce emissions sharply. And, of course, I'm speaking globally. Uh, this is we not, have to. not the case everywhere, and I'm but and it I'm is a global problem, right? Yeah. Uh, so right now we're, we're not looking like we're going to stem emissions anytime soon. In fact, the, you know, we're poised to, to increase further in our annual emissions. Well, in one of your lectures, you talked about the the carbon emitted from our automobiles is so persistent; it's still in the atmosphere ten thousand years later. I've, that that first is a, a data point I want to put out there for listeners to consider. But I'm also just curious about the science. How do you how do you measure that? How do you know that? Yeah, so that's some work that's been done by folks at the University of Chicago, a guy named David Archer, and, and he's looked at the lifetime of the, the disturbance when you add carbon yeah. to the atmosphere. It might not be the exact molecule, but it's, it's sort of like if you uh, make a wave, the wave stays there even though it might be a different molecule of water wiggling. The effect of it is lasting that long, and that's 25% of the, the CO2 is still affecting the atmosphere in 10,000 years. So uh, that might be a, a useful sort of a refrain for people to think about that. So when they're even just idling, and we, we, we know it's, we've talked about idling uh, in a sort of a local uh, water cooler discussion about how much, so all, just even that is just adding up. And I, I, that 
that's another topic yeah, that I drives me crazy. I also like to tell people every molecule of CO2 that yeah. comes out of our smokestacks or tailpipes is like another tiny nudge on the global thermostat. And so that's something that the new IPCC report really emphasizes. International Panel on, on Climate Change. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so every bit of the CO2, it's really a, a factor. The temperature is going to be dictated by the cumulative CO2 emissions, whether it's today or tomorrow. It's the total that we're worried about. Right. For those of you who've just joined us, you're tuned in to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at car repair facilities uh, and permitting agencies are on the web at KUCI.org. And my guest is Steve Davis, Earth System Scientist at UCI, in the send-up to the weekend's international rally bringing attention to the urgency of managing climate change. Well, one thing... I want to put out here as we're talking about this global aspect is when we're watching how other countries are increasing their fossil fuel commitment and I want for now and for all time for all consumers in this country to own that commitment because we're importing goods from all of those countries. So if we're showing a decline in our commitment in our facilities, it doesn't matter because we're buying the goods coming from where all that coal is just choking all the Chinese and Vietnamese and Thais and all that. So uh, how how often do you get a chance to turn tilt that perspective and say, it's we own that? That's actually a, a big part of what I research. And so back in 2010, uh, Ken Caldera, who you mentioned, and I yes. had a, a paper where we quantified the amount of carbon emissions that are virtually embodied in goods that get traded. In other words, if you make a widget in China, there's some CO2 that comes out of that plant smokestacks. And if that widget then gets exported to the U.S., you could attach those emissions to the product and reallocate global emissions according to not where they're produced, but where the goods are consumed. And it turns out, especially China, which we all know is a, a really big deal in the climate uh, issue right now, about 25% of the emissions that are produced in China are associated with goods that wind up being exported to be consumed outside of China. It's not more than that? It is 20, I would have thought even more, but 25 percent is wow. the number. 25% is the number. And a lot of those are really energy-intensive uh, goods like big machinery, electronics, and things that take a lot of energy. And because they're burning a lot of coal for that energy, that's why there's a lot of emissions associated with it. And I, the commitment uh, um, part, too, depends on which kind of coal, which coal is it like the it, I, I'm not going to say cleaner coal, but there's the coal with less sulfur in it that um, I don't know if the Chinese are using more of that. They're, I think they're using anything, any coal they can import yeah, from anywhere. Point, right. So, it, <laughs> But so the commitment has to factor in some of that, uh, the extent to which there's sulfur uh, uh, present in that element or um, how... Uh, yeah. It must be an extremely complicated model. Uh, that's a good point, Claudia. It, right now, the commitment accounting that we've done strictly looks at CO2, so it's sort of equating all types of coal. But you're absolutely right. There are different qualities of coal that have both better efficiency or worse efficiency in the plant, as well as these other pollutants like sulfate that come out. The sulfate uh, actually has a cooling effect on the climate. You yes. probably knew this. You were talking a bit about that one in your lecture, so that's good to bring that up, the, yeah. that, that uh, approach. Right. So, uh, yeah. The, radi it, the solar radiation management. Sure. So there's there's lots of, of strategies that we have for contending with the climate problem, you know, starting with things like being efficient with our use of power or using low carbon sources of energy. 
But as you round out and get through the, the mitigation side of those options, you start talking about some kind of crazy things, um, which some of your listeners may have heard about, things called geoengineering approaches. And that's a big umbrella, but one of the particular kinds of geoengineering that people are discussing is what you just brought up, solar radiation management. And so this, in my view, this is a very last-ditch, uh, terrifying approach, really. But the idea of solar radiation management is that you would intentionally add uh, reflective particles to the upper atmosphere to basically block some of the sunlight from coming into the planet. And sulfate is the one that's commonly discussed. Uh, we actually know this would work because uh, large volcanic eruptions do exactly this. Mount Pinatubo got that started. That's right. So back in 1991, Mount Pinatubo put a lot of sulfate up, and, and climate scientists were able to observe uh, about a half a degree decrease in global temperatures for a couple of years after that until the sulfate ultimately uh, washed out of the upper atmosphere. Um, but the, the problem with that is, of course, it doesn't solve all the problems of climate change. It doesn't do anything about ocean acidification. Uh, we're not really sure also how it would be uh, on ecosystems over the long run. We know it doesn't ruin the planet, as in the Pinatubo case in just the first few years. But if we wanted to do this for decades, um, that seems a little bit risky, uh, not knowing how it's going to affect the, the sunlight. Because it's not just turning down the sun. It also changes some of the properties. Yes, other interactive effects that are always impossible. You can do, do maybe one independent variable, but goodness knows how right. many independent, independent variables are floating around and, in our you know, atmosphere. We could sit here and, and spitball, oh. but there's countless examples of, of us not doing a great job anticipating the outcomes of our intentional interventions like this. Okay, yeah. So. Well, we know we always have another volcano coming, yeah, too. Yeah, that's true. But, but you know, it's a, it's a last-ditch strategy. But, the yes. people that are researching it think of it as the you know, break here in case of fire type situation. Well, I'm, I've been familiar with um, some, we'll talk about some uh, ways of uh, mitigating here, because uh, you, you break down where there's the uh, reduction, the mitigation, and then the management in your lovely uh, lectures that you provide. Um, let's talk about, um, are you finding, are we getting closer with some of the solar, uh, the, uh, the carbon capturing uh, I know that every there's a that's a little holy grail. There's a race toward in all uh, economies in the world. But how sanguine are you about that possibility sequestering that carbon for all time? Yeah, I mean, I think we've proven that we have the technology to remove carbon from either a smokestack stream or the air. The even ambient, yeah, um, it's harder in the ambient air. Obviously, there's less CO two, so it's, it makes it harder to grab. Um, but in some sense, the bigger problem is the idea of scaling up that technology to the level where we're literally capturing billions of tons of CO2 and then transporting it and pumping it underground, presumably, or into the bottom of the ocean somewhere. Um, or some agricultural re refunneling them. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. There, I mean, there's ideas of, some of, of those. how to do some of that, like biochar type situations. Is, yeah. So... Uh, capturing the CO2 and, and storing it seems like it's theoretically possible, but it's going to be a daunting infrastructural uh, dilemma, and it's going to cost us a lot. So, I, you know, I think it may or may not prove to be uh, cost competitive with, say, some of the low-carbon energy technologies. We okay. may end up wanting to generate solar and wind power instead of burning coal and going through this uh, rigmarole of capturing the carbon. Okay. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Steve Davis, Earth System Scientist at UCI, and we're talking about... The, it's I don't know, it's not the elephant in the room, it's the herd of elephants in the room. 
all colors and all that. So you were talking about alternatives, um, low-carbon alternatives. Let's be intellectually honest. We're looking at creating new technologies, but we have under our nose. A.J. Shaka from the chemistry uh, department here at USAI, he's persuaded me. We know how to do a banana. We know we have a benign nuclear power alternative to creating energy. The, the thorium, the salt, um, uh, molten salt model. Why do you think that's not even coming up in lectures like yours? I mean, you, 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 dis, you dismiss it, say, well, it's, it's a big PR problem. But, but we're putting a lot of attention, time, and money into new modalities, but we know all about that. We just didn't opt for that in the 60s or the 70s. What? Let's let your mind race. And so somebody says, we're going to fund this for you. We're going to give you all the public relations resources that you need to sell this to the public. How far would you take that? You know, I think it's a promising technology, and it's one of several nuclear technologies that are out there. Um, there's some more traditional ones that would uh, breed their own fuels and, and have a longer fuel cycle. I think it does have a real problem with public acceptance. People are scared of this, and especially after Fukushima, you know, it, it, it definitely gets people's imaginations going. That said, I'm all for pursuing that kind of thing. The, the main problem that I see is that we need to reduce carbon emissions sharply and drastically in the next 10, 20 years at maximum. Uh, and that, that, by the way, is probably assuming that we're not even going to hit the two-degree target. To stay under three or four degrees, we need to do this within 10 to 20 years. It's not clear to me that a technology that, you're right, it has had some work done back in the 50s, but it's not proven at an industrial scale. There's only one facility that I know of that's even ever been built, and I'm not sure it operated in, in the Oak Ridge National Lab. But to get that to a commercial scale and deployed widely around the world is a pretty uh, slow process. And that's probably going to take us, even if we were Manhattan Project, Apollo mission, all out, going to take us 30 or 40 years to get that grown to a, to a large extent. So that might be too late even still. Not to say we shouldn't be pursuing it, but it's, it's not going to solve the problem on its own. And I want to just say for people with the for a historic perspective, the reason why, the large reason I understood that AJ explained to me was that it was not, that option was not exercised is because the, re, the, the power structure wanted to have a uranium byproduct, a, a weapon-grade mm. byproduct, and you didn't get that from the thorium, thorium processing. So that's... That yeah, it's it wasn't because it didn't have other features. Right, exactly, yeah. I know. Right, right. Well, okay. So, um, oh, Dorda. <laughs> let's talk. Um, then, are there? You were talking about the other alternatives, but it's that uh, wind and uh, solar. All those have a, uh, a there's a low energy uh, output for the inputs in that in terms of space. And, uh, and we can't store it like we can with some of the fossil fuels. So we've got, it's a huge up, uh, st steep slope for us to convert to any of those things, even though we're seeing trends of a more, uh, a, a more cheaply developed and sold solar panels. So how much of that inroad is, is really helpful to? Yeah, this is where I have to be the most optimistic about our outlook is that we are really growing those technologies and solar panels, as you said, are getting considerably cheaper in recent years. We're building a fair number of these. We're still not building enough to follow sort of a two-degree pathway, but China and the U.S. are making big investments in this area. 
Uh, some of the companies are selling a lot. And so I, I think there is a chance for these things to be cost competitive. I'm glad you, though, brought up the fact that these things have their technological hurdles associated with them. It, it's not the case, in my view, that the folks burning coal are evil, wanting to ruin the world. I think that what's going on there is that there's an economic interest and there's strictly some technological convenience to the fact that you can shovel more coal in the fire to get power whenever you like, where that's not always the case with some of the early solar and wind technologies that we have. All right. You mentioned the, the political will and, and that kind of a thing. And you, let's hook into that, that there is an inertia you're talking about in terms of our uh, commitment to the power plants to, to turn that around. And I want to have you talk to the political economic inertia that there there's two, like the, what Naomi Klein talks about in, uh, in her her book um, that she's just come out. It, everything, it changes everything. Um, it's, it, folks, I, I really recommend that, I, what little I've been able to read so far. She talks about uh, that that political, social political inertia being set up with in the, in the 1980s, where as we're starting to get a real great handle on uh, on Earth systems, that there was at the same time a deregulation of the energy sector, and there was also a beginning of unlimited and leading to now where we have unlimited campaign uh, funding of of name your uh, candidate, and so I'm I'm thinking with. I may s conserve all I can at the household level, but if the Koch brothers are going to dump money so that Mitch McConnell is reelected and becomes po potentially the the leader of the U.S. Senate, uh, what good did my uh, you know that that inertia is what keeps me up at night, makes me angry. Yeah, not me, just me scary. too. Me too. I think you're exactly right that we have such a concentration of political influence in these companies now, and and obviously they have a business model. They're trying to make money for their shareholders. They've got valuable infrastructure that, albeit is ruining the climate, uh, they're still able to do legally uh, burn coal and put CO2 into the atmosphere. So it, they're the ones that are really the, the block on progress at this point. We have to, to be willing to pay a little bit more for our energy, but we also have to get past this entrenched lobby of fossil fuel interests, and that's going to be a real challenge. I think it's one, though, that things like this climate rally coming up um, can help with. Well... With the climate rally reference, let's imagine, Steve Davis, that uh, you're on the program there in the Big Apple, microphones right in front of you, uh, the audience is all warmed up with, uh, who knows, uh, the, the mayor, the, um, the, the sexiest of all the climate change activists, and now you have an opportunity to pitch your message for the immediate public and the global public. What would you say at that rally, Steve? I, I would say that... It's really important that we start thinking about the future in a way that we have only really given lip service to up until this point. It's, it's the case that we're already seeing these impacts on the climate, and then they're only going to get worse. And it's high time that we realize that we have to leave these valuable fossil fuels in the ground. And that means overcoming this political inertia that we were just speaking about and getting on board with low-carbon energy alternatives, being more efficient with our power. We're not talking about a huge expense. Uh, economists estimate we could solve the climate problem for 2 or 3% of the world's GDP. And at really? this point, we oh. have you know, some really uh, positive things happening. We are building more of these alternative low-carbon energy technologies than we ever have before. We also have these new rules on existing power plants that the Obama administration has just passed, and that's an encouraging thing. 
the Paris Treaty talks are coming up uh, next year, and I think that there's an opportunity there for a new global agreement on how to get China on board with some of this. So these things are happening, but we need to do even more because right now we don't yet have a, a uniform price on carbon in this country or globally would be even better. So that's that's really hurting the low carbon alternatives because they can't compete when it's free to dump CO2 into the atmosphere. On the other end, we it's need a to subsidy. be That's right, yeah. it's effectively a subsidy. And on the other end, sort of the bottom up approach, we need to be doing more with research and development of these alternative low carbon energy technologies and efficiency technologies and really spending on deploying those things. Right now, in this country we spend more on potato chips than we do on energy R&D. And I, I think that's just abysmal given what we are facing in terms of the climate impacts. So we, we need to do better on that end as well. And, and with those one-two approach of making the fossil fuels more expensive and making better uh, low-carbon alternatives from the bottom up, we can solve this problem. Well, and I know in the back of your head, and I'm going to move it up to the front, the through, uh, through the, the lips there, is that you'd want to look them straight in the eye and say, vote and vote for the person whose policies are going to advance the l whole leadership profile of investment in this R&D. Yeah, that, well, that's a lot more uh, articulate than what I just said. But No, yeah. no, it's not. No, I know. Not you're the one. No, no. You're, you're right. Fundamentally, that's the biggest power we have. We can, we can unplug our cell phones and try to buy a Prius, but really the vote and getting leaders in place that are going to encourage this kind of transformation of our energy sector is what we need. Uh, that's the best way. I'm sure we're going to look back on this if we have a, have a chance and say, what were, what were the lack of leaders uh, thinking at that time? Well, I know that you have a number of uh, publications that are to be released, uh, one right around when the rally uh, is occurring on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I'm hoping that, Steve Davis, that we'll have you back on Ask a Leader to post us on those uh, fast-breaking items that are in our slow-burning planet uh, world here at Sector and, and take those up again. Sure, I would love to. Well, thank you very much. That was Steve Davis, Earth System Scientist faculty here at UCI in advance of the rally around the country on climate change. We'll be right break and we'll bring up Mark Tabbert, climate change lobby activist uh, from Newport Beach. Stay with me, we'll be right back. Well, folks, in case you were wondering, that is a, a Danish mass, um, and that mass uh, particular track is called, among other things, Coal Dealer Requiem. We turn now from the science of climate change to the activism aspect. And so Mark Tabbert is the co-founder of the Newport Beach area chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. He's chosen the New York City venue for this weekend's rallies about climate change. Mark graduated at Southern Methodist University and attended Claremont School of Theology, where he enrolled in a life-changing course called Earth Ethics. Mark served in the U.S. Army in special services. His first two years of his businesses were uh, allied with sales in the steel industry, and later he became self-employed self-employed broker in different fields, eventually retiring from a career as a business broker 
buying and selling small and medium-sized businesses. He tried his hand at municipal politics in Newport Beach City Council race that he lost in 2009, but which must, much must have uh, prepared him for other aspirations like the city citizens' climate lobby that he co-founded with Craig Peters nearby in Newport Beach. With their focused brand of activism, they've contributed to this grassroots organization and they've continued to grow their ranks. Today, Mark and I will post uh, uh, folks on the, the ro inroads that Citizens of Climate Change has made locally and uh, then head over to uh, the venue he, he we'll be going to at the end of the week. Mark Tabert, so glad to have you back on Ask a Leader. Thank you very much, Claudia. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. And I know you were listening to Steve Davis, so that thrills me that we're going to be able to just tack on to any of the points that uh, the, the science carries into the kind of message that you as an activist are using to persuade one congressman, one office holder at a time to get on board with the need to put heft into this climate change message. Well, before we go into your latest uh, inroads and your lobbying outcomes, let's return to what previously you explained is what the Citizens Climate Lobby, what it's doing, and, and briefly what the carbon tax is, since you heard a, sort of a reference from Steve Davis about that. Give us a brief summary, both of the organization and the carbon tax is sort of the, the poster child uh, central item for you guys. Okay, Claudia, I'll start uh I'll start with Citizens Climate Lobby. We're a group with just two goals. Our primary goal is to create the political will for a stable climate. And our second goal to achieve the first is to empower individuals to have breakthroughs in exercising their personal and political power. I've been involved, I'm done two other, two other board of directors with two other nonprofits. I've never been around though a group like Citizens Climate Lobby in terms of getting things done. So, um, and it's citizensclimatelobby.org if anybody wants to learn more about us. We actually have a phone call every Wednesday afternoon at 5 o'clock. You can tune into that, and you'll get an hour live call with somebody out of our staff in San Diego to explain how we do what we do. So you ask about a carbon tax. When I heard Steve Davis talk, he was a, sounded like a very inspirational teacher. Sounds like a good scientist. And I actually checked his credentials out before the call today. Yes. I called Michael Prather at UCI. Michael Prather is a member of the IPCC. Uh, he's been on the IPC committee with the United Nations for the last 24 years. The International Panel on Climate Change. I, yeah. Right. And he had only good things to say about Steve, uh, about his good science. So. Well, that's a first um, is a, a background check on one of my guests by another guest. <laughs> the um, We have, you know... If I talk about solutions, if I talk about the march, I'm much more specific, though, than Steve is about solutions, and right. I'm much more specific than the march is itself. Um, the march really is not marching for anything, not any specific action, um, you know, solving the problem, but that's not a specific, there's not a specific plan to do that. And we really face in the United States four choices. We can subsidize, we can do cap-and-trade, we can do command and control, which is EPA rules and regulations, or we can pass a revenue-neutral carbon fee and dividend plan, which I prefer over a carbon tax. Um, and the way that works, Claudia, real briefly, is that the American fossil fuel industry pays a tax based on how much pollution they'll produce at the well, the mine, or the port. 
That money is all cycled into the United States government, but it's turned right around and sent out to American households on a per capita basis so that everybody, in effect, receives a dividend, just like people in Alaska do right now. They receive a dividend annually um, based on their oil revenues the state generates. An extraction sort of dividend, right. right. And we, our dividend would be on, we would recommend a dividend paid on a monthly basis so that families can adjust to rising prices of, of energy, which is exactly what would happen. Oil and coal and natural gas would, uh, would increase their prices. The um, two-thirds of American families would break even or come out ahead on that, trans- on that uh, transaction. But it would force everybody to sort of become aware of rising energy costs, energy costs. It would also encourage other technologies being developed uh, as oil, coal, and natural gas start to pay for their social cost that we currently pick up as a society. Right. I could ramble on like this, Claudia. Am I getting to what you're trying to get? Well, no, um, that, helps, that helps us. It's sort of where uh, it's a sort of follow-through from what Steve was addressing. He almost brought some of those kinds of things. So the, but the dividend, uh, back to the public, is not uh, any, it's not necessarily an incentive. How do you get the incentive, though, from the incentive is on the producing side, getting, at, getting away from subsidizing fossil fuel emissions. Does the dividend provide some kind of incentives for the household level? Well, remember, um, it may appear that way, and it often does to people when I first explain the carbon tax or the carbon fee and dividend plan. But the truth is consumers understand that energy prices are going up, and they start to realize that that's going to not only happen this year, but it's going to happen year after year after year. So they're going to make adjustments. Even though they have a dividend and they could, cons- they could keep buying expensive gasoline or wasting energy in their homes, that's not what happens. Australia passed a carbon tax. And their emissions went down by 6% in the first three months. Right. And the reason is not because they felt it in the pocketbook, but they realized what was happening, and they started turning the lights off, and they started making adjustments. There are many things we can do to affect our energy footprint um, that we just ignore now because we sort of think of electricity as being free to a large extent. Um, so, And remember, one-third of people are going to feel the, feel the pinch, in their pocketbook, and they're going to be, you know, making decisions to alter their footprint, too. Right, right. Well, what's particularly interesting and impressive about the Citizens Climate Lobby is you are laser-like moving in on this education campaign uh, with editorial press, with meetings, with policymakers, office holders, and you, uh, you can talk about that uh, in, in the process of answering. You, you, you have a glow of optimism that I find uh, it's, it's a bit reassuring in this, uh, this pessimistic sort of uh, soup of, uh, that I, we're all um, amidst wallowing here. But you're, you seem to be, you think, chipping away at the climate denial, climate change denial in those immediate uh, office holders to us here around Orange County. And whom have you been meeting with and working with on, on your, with your genial persuasion of recent? Well, you know, being in Orange County, we're responsible to talk to people like Rohrbacher and Campbell and, and, and Ed Royce. Uh, but let me say, in preparation for answering the question maybe more fully, is that there are currently, as evidence that we're making an impact, there are currently four bills in Congress, three in the House and one in the Senate, 
that recommend a revenue-neutral carbon fee and dividend plan of different forms. They're all a little bit different, and I wouldn't say any one of them is exactly what we would um, propose. But anybody could, you know, could, you know, learn about these. Uh, they're introduced by uh, Congressman McDermott, Congressman Larson, Congressman Van Hollen, and Bernie Sanders in, in the Senate, Bernie Sanders and Barbara Boxer. So these are actually bills, and the people that, you know, the people we talk to in Congress and some of the big industries we talk to, like Nike and Starbucks, they give us credit for really raising this issue at a national level. Um, and I can promise you that we talk to all four of these members, all five of these members of Congress on a regular basis and have influenced the fact that these bills are on the floor. The national lobby is. The national citizens' yeah, climate lobby has. Right. Right. But, yeah, I mean, um, Dana Rohrabacher is a big climate change denier, but he's my assignment. He's my congressman, one of my, one of my assignments. And I've met with him three times face-to-face, -face, once here locally and then twice in Washington. And after our last meeting last June, uh, he invited our group to have a beer with him at the local, uh, his favorite Irish pub in Washington, D.C. And I read this note to you, Claudia. I would like to read it to the audience um, to let you know how, you know, CCL has a certain style. We go after this thing in a very um, affable, affable, friendly way. We always give thanks to who we're talking to for their service, public service. We always look for things that we can honestly appreciate about what they've done. And for instance, in Rohrbacher's case, I saw him talk about patents, which he's an expert on patents. Oh, really? And he sees himself as a savior of the small guy in the patent office versus the big corporation. And when he talked about that issue, you can see his blood rise, just like my blood rises when I talk about climate change issues. Okay. Um, and so you see his humanity. At the next day, we got a note from his communication director, and I'll read it to you real quickly. Uh, he wrote it to us. He said, my thanks to you and your colleagues for the most pleasant evening with Dana last night. I know he enjoyed it as I did and appreciate the sincere, non-confrontational manner in which it was conducted, a model of constructive public discourse. And then he goes on to say, please contact me in the future. Um, this is a man who doesn't believe in climate change, but um, we've made a personal relationship with him. And he's actually introduced us to two corporations, two companies, at the owners of both those companies who definitely believe in climate change. Which You want to name names? They're, promised, they're trying to help us convince Dana that he should be doing something differently than he's done. Um, so he sent you to some firms that want to help you convince him that's the triangle well, he didn't he didn't say it that way but he but, but the that's, people that he introduced me to right. one one is a guy in costa mesa california that turns plastic i mean sorry turns oil into plastic i'm sorry it turns um carbon no not carbon it turns i can't think of the word so let's just talk about the structure here though he uh, following up to that meeting then they provided you with resources that are actually your alliances and you are working in a sort of a triangle that continued to uh, bring additional literacy, connect the dots with what uh, Congressman Rohrbacher's, we'll call it passion, uh, an overused word, I usually don't use it, um, but to get him to see a link between what drives the patent train is also something could drive the, 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 the carbon reduction train. 
So does that help you give you a moment here to consider what um, what it was that th that technology that that Costa Mesa firm does in conversion? Well, I, I, well, we'll I, get, I was listening to what you were saying we'll, instead of thinking okay, about we'll, that we'll word, get back which to is that. So, just crazy that I can't think of it right now. We'll have a, well, for those it's something at the you know at the pig farm and at the and the gasification is. Uh, but uh, I don't want to say a bad word on the radio. You know what I'm talking about. Oh it's no, what, we've talked about that already with with uh, with Steve Davis's colleague Ken Caldera. It's with the uh, flagellate. Um, now, now I can't say uh, flatulence of the meat. You know, of livestock that we're, there's a considerable amount of methane emitted. Is that what you're talking about? We're you're, talking you're, about, but that's not the right word to use for it. But uh, flatulence is what it is, and they turn that flatulence from a pig farm into plastic. And the other man he introduced us to was a man that captures, that stops flare gas from being flared off in North Dakota. And everywhere else. Nigeria, name anywhere, the place. Anywhere else. The fact of the matter is it's illegal, according to EPA rules, to flare gas off. But everybody does it, and there's no way for the EPA to, to govern the thing, to police the thing. And, uh, but this company, U.S. Flare, has a way to capture that gas, not burn it off, and, and turn it into products that we can use. So... Um, these are two two companies we're working with now to try to – I don't expect to really change Dana on his science, but I am thinking we can convince Dana that he should take, just take some insurance out and, and support a revenue-neutral carbon tax on the basis that, you know, if, just in case he's wrong, we want to have some cheap insurance. The other thing that impressed Dana that I haven't mentioned to you, yes. Claudia, is that we have – Citizens Climate Lobby – contracted with a group called Remy. That's the Regional Economic Modeling Incorporated. That's a company that does economic modeling. And they did an economic model of a revenue-neutral carbon tax. And the results of that were quite surprising. We suspected that, that a carbon tax would not hurt the economy, but actually it helps the economy. Okay. It actually adds jobs. It actually saves lives. And it actually boosts the GM, GDP, GMP. Um, and if you look in the today's New York Times, there's an article along those same lines that uh, solving the climate change problem may not really be so costly. We've been led to believe that's the case, but that's part of the that's part of the denial industry that's led us to believe that climate change isn't real. Okay. And this Rimmer report is something that Rohrbacher likes a lot, and the reason he likes it a lot is that he knows he hates air pollution and he knows that if you if we had a carbon tax coal would quickly disappear from the marketplace it would actually just disappear in the united states within about 10 years from being used as a energy producer and and so that means that people live longer and healthier lives because you also when you get rid of coal you eliminate NOx and SOx, sulfur dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and nitric oxide. Right. I think of the right terms. That's right. Right. And those things go down when you when you start stop burning coal. And and that's something go, um, he's very interested in learning more about. Well, I suppose he'd be responsive too to what those uh, gases do as uh, in raise acidifying the ocean where he surfs happily. So that there seems to be approaches that, or if we could just get him just to have him soften him enough that he sort of doesn't obstruct what kinds of climate change advances might be happening in Congress. There might be sort of a small uh, contribution that would make maybe. But for those of you who've just joined us today, my second guest on Ask Leader is Mark Tabert, co-founder of the Newport Beach Area Chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby here on 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is KUCI and on the web at KUCI.org. 
Mark is packing his bags for the Big Apple. That's the the most uh, central, that's a consolidated rally location for uh, this weekend. That's on Sunday. And so um, I don't know if you want to just give a crack. If you had a chance on the microphone uh, at the rally, what, what might be a pitch for the following you'd like to make? We'll give you a chance with that, Mark. Not too long. Well, I mean, I've already said it really, Claudia. I mean, okay. I would... I believe there's a solution for climate change, and people think that people think it's impossible to deal with. They think it's too big a problem. They don't know what to do. And I'd like to make it clear to people that there is something to do. It's not a costly solution. Um, and the other thing about a carbon tax we haven't mentioned, which is so important, that cap and trade doesn't do this. Subsidies, anything we do in the United States doesn't doesn't affect China, with the exception of a carbon tax. If we attach tariffs at the border, so that if China wants to send that 25% of their products to the United States and they don't pass a like policy in China, then we charge a tariff on their products when they come into the U.S. All right. That's not, that wouldn't be a sort of litigated as a sort of a hostile economic uh, unilateral measure, but we could, get, we could actually just do that without consequence. Well, I mean, there, there could be a consequence to that. We have consulted with the World Trade Organization, and they've, and they've said there are two ways we can get away with doing that without a problem. Um, the first way has to do with the business aspect of it, which I couldn't describe quickly to you. The second is, is there's an environmental exception in the WTO, Okay. and this would qualify under that exception rule, under that rule. But there, there may be some other. They're, they're, they're in the long game with all their strategic operations around the world, so I'm sure there's, there are other means. Uh, Chinese could play their hand with the tremendous <laughs> economic portfolio they have uh, in our economy. So it's a, that, it, that would be tough to pull off. I just have to mention that, I think. Well, well let, me just say, let me just try to say one thing. Yes. China is waiting for us to do something. The entire world is waiting for America, who has dragged its feet on climate change, yes. to do something. They're not going to be as... China already has a carbon tax in five of their provinces. Okay. So the idea that they're going to be fighting us tooth and nail over this deal, I really would think that's not the case, and I really think that's not optimism. Okay. Thanks. No, 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 no. That that's a, a literate response to that because it, it talks to the um, where where are the attentions in the, the long games of the more strategic countries are, and that you're saying that's they they understand that and they're working those. Uh, up other energy solutions. And of course, they've, they've been working the, the solar panel industry and so many others and uh, the carbon capture. So it's, uh, it's feasible that, as you're saying, that there, that tariff would not uh, uh, be undermined by, uh, on their part at least. Well, um, I want to give you one more chance to plug the Citizens Climate Lobby for people who are sufficiently rattled. They want to be uh, more focuses to be reckoned with, and uh, then I'm going to sign off with you and give people a little more information about how they can get on board, whether it's in New York City or on in the Los Angeles rally. So just a little, just one more plug for CCL. Well, thanks so much, Claudia, for this whole chance to talk with the audience this morning. I appreciate it. Um, all I can say is, is try to go to our website, citizensclimatelobby.org. You can find my contact information there easily. I would love to talk to anybody that has questions. Again, we have a Wednesday phone call at 5 o'clock every week on Wednesday. It's a live call. If you don't like what you're hearing, you can simply hang up and say goodbye. Oh, no, don't. Um, no, no, we've got to stay with us all. And so, and and uh, I just want you to have a chance, too, to say that, that there were a number of 
uh, there's there's hundreds of climate change related organizations and I was saying in preparation for this interview that I wondered why there wasn't more coalescing around this rally and you were so astute to say every organization that is meaningfully engaged in this has very specific charters it could be uh, 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 political uh, elections campaigns it could be the the carbon tax promotion, like what all of you are doing through uh, editorial press uh, reinforcement and other things, are they're all doing different things, so maybe they don't all need to be a part of the rally. They just continue to plug away at their various campaigns, and that single-minded approach actually helps people be more focused and more effective. I think it's working for CCL, yes. You know, that we don't, we could talk about fracking, but we, we tend, we don't, we don't do that except in the idea that we don't need to frack for new sources of energy. We already have too many fossil fuel reserves. We don't need new stuff. Right. Uh, okay. That's how we would talk about fracking. Even though I believe personally that fracking is a disaster, I just don't use my political capital to talk about that issue. Okay. Well, Mark, we we're running totally out of time. I had a few more Great announcements about the rally. Mark Tabbert is the co-founder of the Citizens Climate Lobby chapter here in Newport Beach. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. All Thanks. right. My favorite theme here from Sonny Rollins, the global warming theme. So I want for you all to take note that the, the source for information about the rally, the, the national one, is peoplesclimate.org. You can text 97779, and uh, I'm going to sport my own little UCI radio t-shirt when I cover the L.A. rally, so I can meet any one of you there. I particularly was enchanted by the... Uh, the ones that are meeting along this route, the uh, Earthlings at the United Earthlings at the Climate March, uh, the Earth, this whole uh, climate change rally is going in Los Angeles. Will be along a segment of Wilshire Boulevard between Alvarado and Wilton, from one to five on Saturday, September twentieth. All the details are on the web for the LA rally at againstclimatechange.org. And the website allows participants to sign up at the various locations along the route. 63 so far have checked in. And as I said, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'll be near maybe the Unite Earthlings and I'll, then I'll move around from there. So to uh, automobile operators, I'm going to have you mind the gap. That's the three-foot buffer between your car and bikes on the road. That became law last week or it's a $100 fine and a wobbly cyclist. So if you can't keep the buffer, you might try to slow down as much as you're able. With the plant burning up, we certainly would not want to discourage cyclists who want to pare down their carbon footprint. And cyclists, you have a part in this mix to follow all the modus rules since they apply to you as well. Well, that's all the time we have on Ask a Leader. If you missed a portion of today's or any other show, you can catch a podcast on my website, askaleader.com or on iTunes talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening.